Hey, Cam, how have you been lately? Oh, no. You're saying that there are way more bugs than when your father, Cam the Ram Sr., was around? I mean, I know they're annoying. Is it really that big of a deal? Hmm, that's interesting. I think I've heard about these vector-borne diseases before. Cam, we're going to try our best to figure out what all the buzz is about. Don't you worry, we're on it. Everyone, to the lab! Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. Thank you for joining us on VetCast. I'm Caroline. I'm Tiara. And I'm Adam. And we're veterinary students at Colorado State University. Today, we're going to be talking about vector-borne diseases and climate change. Climate change and bugs? Isn't that a little weird of a connection? Because when I think about climate change, I think about like hurricanes, tornadoes, fires. Yeah, I'm not sure what Cam has to worry about with the ice caps melting here yeah. in Colorado. Well, I can see bugs increasing because of climate change. But so what? Is that really going to bother him that much? Well. He did mention the vector-borne diseases. It's true. That's true. But what really is a vector-borne disease anyways? Let's start with the basics. A vector-borne disease are diseases that result from an infection transmitted to humans and other animals by an organism. Most commonly, they're from blood-feeding arthropods. What are some examples of these arthropods? Well, things like mosquitoes and fleas and ticks, you know, all those annoying bugs that you kind of swat away. Hmm. So I can, I guess, so like you get warmer, you get more bugs, the bugs have the diseases, vis-a-vis, more bugs, more diseases. Vectors are ectotherms, so they tend to do better in a warmer environment. Exactly. They're cold-blooded, so that would definitely increase their number. And it's expected that vector abundance, survival, and feeding activity will increase with the increase in temperatures. It'll probably be more than just increase in number. Climate can affect many aspects of vector-borne diseases. Transmission dynamics, geographic spread, re-emergence, direct effects on pathogen, so on and so forth. It seems like a lot to get our heads around. I wish we had like some sort of expert maybe that could really dive into these details a little better. Actually, I think I have the perfect person in mind. You know, Dr. Mayo. Oh yeah, Dr. Mayo has a DBM, a Master's of Science, and a PhD in Comparative Pathology. She's an associate professor here at CSU, where she works at the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, researching vector-borne diseases like blue tongue. Blue tongue? That's a disease that ruminants can get from midges. Cam's a ruminant. And midges are vectors. Y'all, we have to talk to Dr. Mayo. Let's get on this. (laughs) Let's go. Oh, hey, Dr. Mayo. Thanks for joining us today on VetCast. Uh, We just wanted to have a chat with you about vector-borne diseases like blue tongue. Could you explain to the folks listening in what is a vector-borne disease exactly and why they are important to understand from an animal-slash-human health perspective? Yeah, so when I think about vector-borne disease, I mean, granted I'm skewed a little bit, but usually something transmitted, particularly by an, or usually by an arthropod, um, in a various variety of ways, right? So, like, there are biological um, vectors. Those are the ones that I study, um, but there's... Also a number of just 
different ways these things can be transmitted. And so thinking about it from an invertebrate host, if you will, <laughs> as I was discussing to a vertebrate host, um, that's typically the way I think about a vector born disease. Now, sometimes there can be just transmission by mechanical, you know, uh, transfer and, um, those I don't study as much, but yeah, that's kind of how I classify vector born. And the reason I think they're so important is, you know, they're very difficult to control, um, for a number of reasons. Um, anything from, you know, if you apply an integrative pest management to an arthropod, there's resistance or there's an ability for these um, insects to move at rates that you can't, you know, like cattle, you can sometimes control in the ways they move or you can quarantine human populations or we can vaccinate, which is also an alternative for the vertebrate host. But there's often harder ways to get, you know, I guess in front of a vector um, or an arthropod at the very least. So I think we should study them and we have a changing world. And so we've got to study a changing world and a changing environment and what pressures that puts upon these little critters. <laughs> so your area of expertise, as you mentioned, is specifically in blue tongue, BTV. So we, for our podcast, we spoke to Cam the Ram a bit ago. He told us he and his friends are concerned about the diseases they may encounter as the climate is changing. Are you seeing changes in diseases like BTV attributable to climate change in your work specifically? Yeah, so in 2006, we saw one of the biggest outbreaks, and I know that's a long time ago, um, but that was in, in Europe and North, you know, kind of Northern Europe. And that probably prompted most of the significant science that's been occurring since then. Um, over the last, you know, almost, I guess, 15 years, we've studied a lot of not only um, how the ecology of blue tongue is changing, but novel serotypes that can be introduced in certain areas. And not only that, but novel vector species that we're identifying. Now, whether we've looked for them or not before, and we're just now seeing that, um, this novel competence of vector species is what is maybe a little bit concerning and understanding how we understand both their ecology as well as what the transmission could be occurring. So yes, within North America, we have endemic blue tongue strains, but we're always looking for the potential for exotic and or non-endemic strains. Um, and that's where the great work of our graduate students, um, Molly Carpenter, Molly Burton, um, they're doing a great job of looking and doing active surveillance for this. And so, yeah, I would be a little bit, there's been some clinical, you know, presentations along the front range. Let's say that. So Cam, just make sure you stay away from the chelicoides. <laughs> and kind of a follow-up question to when you're saying novel strains, when you say that you're meaning that in a place where it just hasn't seen that strain specifically before, is there variance possibility um, kind of like what we're seeing now in the public health with COVID? Yeah. So I'm, I love that you asked that. So we're just now recognizing whole genome sequencing of all 10 segments. So with, you know, some of the stuff you're discussing with um, SARS-CoV-2, we've been taking a deep dive to look at some of those variants and calling them the different names. With blue tongue, we have 10 segments of this virus, so lots of different parts of the genome. And again, back to the wonderful graduate students, I'll mention Jennifer Kopanke, which um, led to Molly Carpenter's work. We're taking a deep dive now with next generation sequencing, which we've had for a couple of decades, but just now applying it in a more reasonable fashion that's economical. We can really see all of the genetic material. And so 
while we don't have a good grasp on it yet, yes, that's the big thing. We'd love to start digesting what the full whole 10 genomes look like, not just calling it by one or two segments, which is what we've done historically, which is not the wrong thing. It's just now that we have more, I guess, more tools in the tool belt, we can do more. So with variants, uh, is there like an in- increase in severity with like the different serotypes that you'd be like with the, I know in the Northern Europe outbreak, like was that especially bad because it was a new serotype or was it because it, it was never there before? Or both? I think it is the multi-million dollar question in the room, right? So I think everyone wants to tie back what, what particularly in the genetic backbone of that virus potentially could have caused the ramifications. And so we haven't been able to pinpoint the exact segment by segment, at least to my knowledge, um, that attributed to that amount of, I guess, disease in the population. However, there are a couple of things to think about. As you just mentioned, um, what I'll say right now is segment two is what's responsible for the viral protein two, which is usually the part that allows for neutralization of an antibody. And so as I'm getting to this, we can now relate it back to the whole population. So if you don't have a good herd immunity, then as we know, and you've learned this in your um, epi class, without great herd immunity, a novel pathogen could come through and potentially cause, you know, disease in naive populations and or infection without disease. Um, you know, cattle often just get infected. They don't often exhibit disease um, or clinical signs. And so when we're thinking about this, could it be a naive population? Could it be the fact that there is some genetic backbone that's a little bit more aggressive with all of its different segments and then each one encoding for a different protein? And so I think we're coming to that level of being able to harness all of these tools plus the necessary experiments that you have to perform. So it's one thing to take a novel serotype or a novel pathogen and genetically characterize it. It's another thing to be able to recapitulate that and understand it you know, within a a system. And so I think a lot of the folks um, in Europe have done an amazing job of trying to understand these different things. But again, that's just kind of in the vertebrate. We're also thinking about the invertebrate host and all of of its intensity. And, um, you know, there are great groups out there right now understanding more who have, you know, they have all the tools to really understand more of this in the invertebrate. And as climate change pushes us, and pushes, you know, different ecosystems to their limits. I think that will, you know, give us revelation of what what's happening. Now, for us, that's so important as to why we study the field dynamics. And we try to put that back in the lab and put the lab back in the field. And so what I mean by that is that we're not, you know, we're just letting different parts of it inform each other. We're not taking things back and forth, but we're definitely let, letting the data share to to kind of drive our different experiments. Where might we see some of these consequences with gluten? We need to understand this in incursive zones, so places where areas might be getting warmer and vectors might feel more comfortable to to start going or migrating. But then the changes that we're going to start occurring in the endemic zones, right? So those places in which what is going to happen in those areas. And so um, I think just doing some of this Field research, you know, ground level understanding is, to me, that's why it's so important to understand the microclimatic and the macroclimatic. I don't know if that answers your question, but I do think there are changes that are going to occur just realistically and then what climate may push us to our limits. Then one last question with that 
That's all very complicated. So <laughs> what do you think like the general public can really do to help knowledge, education, or just small actions they can take with vector-borne diseases? I think with, yes. Yeah, so with vector-borne diseases, understanding, you know, ecosystems, um, when possible, joining in citizen science. So there's a lot of citizen science educational opportunities to understand decreasing larval habitats, for instance. So, you know, understanding vector-borne disease A, um, understanding the different ways in which we can try to control it. For instance, West Nile has been very, um, very big this year. We've had a lot of incidents of it. But understanding not, you know, maybe not to go pick up or definitely don't go and pick up the the corvid species or the crow that's next door. Um, understanding the neurological horse, you know, as a veterinarian, um, maybe it's not so much public, but understanding there are different ramifications of, you know, these different uh, viral or vector-borne diseases. And so A is education, education. Um, B is just really enforcing ecosystem, um, I think, understanding and ed- educational opportunities and probably C is just really reaching out to vector control districts. There's tons of great educational opportunities as well as like citizen science. So you can really get involved with some of the programs. And I mean, I think it's kind of fun to do that for your, you know, I guess your community, if you will, that can be totally educational, enlightening and rewarding for the community. And so many scientists are wanting folks to, to be engaged, right? I love it when people are like, what's a culicoides? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for the time. And um, yeah, just I hope this has been helpful and hopefully we can make a difference. Dr. Mayo has given us a lot to think about. The problem of increasing vector-borne diseases seems to go a lot farther than just bugging CAM. The increasing range of blue tongue and the problems it brings with it aren't just something we think about in the lab. Just look at the outbreak that Dr. Mayo mentioned that happened in 2006, when blue tongue was first recorded in Northern Europe, when coincidentally, the summer and autumn were exceptionally warm. For the warming climate, those midges found that they could go further than before and ended up allowing the virus to invade previously disease-free areas. And the midges aren't only going further, they're extending their stay. Longer midge season means more midges, and more midges means more and more spread of blue tongue. Even worse, there's potential that the midges are also able to survive through warmer winters, something known as overwintering. So basically, all this led to the midges vacationing outside their comfort zone. Yeah. Or more like places in northern Europe started to become part of their comfort zone. But y'all, how does this actually come around to bug us? Well, let's look at the economics from that outbreak. In France, it was estimated that blue tongue cost over $1.4 billion. In Germany, estimates were up to $238 million. In the Netherlands, more than $85 million. Even without the outbreak, BTV is estimated to cost $3 billion globally. What in the world is costing that much? Well, it's about more than just direct animal loss. Studies have shown that disease burden leads to decreased milk production, weight loss, infertility, and other production losses for the producer which is then reflected back on the consumer when we purchase these items at the grocery store. Not only can we look at the changes in production, but the cost of animal testing and veterinary treatment should also be considered. And then, they still needed to control the disease itself with vaccinations, vector monitoring, and disease surveillance. Don't forget trade restrictions. 
and I'm sure tons more costs that I need an economics degree in order to really understand. These costs aren't just isolated to Bhutan, right? Nope. Surely we're going to see more of all sorts of vector-borne diseases with climate change. Think about it. West Nile, Lyme disease, Eastern equine encephalitis, Zika. These are all major vector-borne diseases too. There have even been reports about these diseases expanding their ranges. For example, a recent paper came out modeling the ecology of Zika virus and its mosquito vector using up-to-date climate data and concluded that with the worst-case warming scenarios, 1.3 billion people will be at risk of being exposed to Zika. Tick vectors are also expanding their ranges along with the warming climate. This is why Canada is starting to report that cases of Lyme disease are on the rise. Now, all these diseases aren't just for people. We've got to worry about them with our animal friends, too. Wow. So it does seem like Cam does have something to worry about. Yeah, we talked a lot about the specifics about, you know, vector-borne diseases and what to possibly look for, but what can we actually do about this in reality? We should focus, I think, on surveillance and preparedness. You know, keeping track of vector-borne diseases and prevalence in your area. I agree. And it's more than just tracking the vector itself. There are small things we can do in our own personal environment. For example, just hygiene or making sure you don't have standing water on your property that the midges and the other vectors like to live in. Yeah, maybe even if you want to take a more animal-centric point of view, you can think about how you would quarantine animals who may be showing signs of novel diseases or inspecting your animals as they move in and out of your facilities to make sure you're not being part of the spread. So it kind of sounds like all of this has to do with educating yourself um, and then educating those around you. With that, this is also what Dr. Mayo mentioned, which is just citizen science both at home and in your community, working with animal health and public health authorities with that information. Community and beyond, voting for people that are willing to look at the science and make policy changes centered on these issues. See, it's not all doom and gloom. There are things we can do on a personal, community, and national level to prepare for and mitigate the effects of climate change and its influence on vector-borne diseases. So, Cam, as you just heard, you're right that there are more bugs zipping around you and your friends. Hopefully, we've given you a lot of tools that you can use to increase your chances of avoiding a vector-borne disease in the future. We can all do our part to help mitigate climate change and hopefully lessen the burden of vector-borne diseases on all of us. Let's try our best for a bright future. Yeah, we have to go above and beyond, plus ultra. We're all in this together. Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast. VetCast.